Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast. This is Jason Kowartz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and our guests on this episode are Dev Patik and Jason Clement, the co-founders of the Sports Facilities Companies. In that role, Dev and Jason are in the business of developing and managing multi-sport complexes across the United States that cater in particular to the youth sports market. While collegiate and professional sports are facing their own struggles, the youth sports market has also seen a near-complete shutdown in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. And yet, as you'll hear in this episode, there is considerable hope for events returning in the near future and optimism in the role that youth sports may play in helping communities recover from the economic downturn that has resulted from society essentially shutting down these past few weeks. But before we begin that in-depth conversation, we'll pause for a moment for a word from the sponsor of this episode. Make waves with your next sports event in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Sports planners are quickly discovering what makes Myrtle Beach the ideal place for sports events. Diverse facilities and fields, affordable accommodations, tons of attractions, and 60 miles of pristine beaches that are sure to please. Set new attendance records when you choose Myrtle Beach. Learn more at visitmyrtlebeachsports.com. That's visitmyrtlebeachsports.com. And now on to our episode. Sports Facilities Companies is an umbrella for several organizations that may be familiar to those in the sports event industry. That includes the Sports Facilities Advisory, or SFA, which was founded in 2003 by Dev Patik and for which he still serves as CEO. That end of the business helps communities determine if a sports complex may be a wise development in their destination, and if so, how many fields and courts such a venue may be able to support. Sports Facilities Management, or SFM, of which Jason Clement serves as CEO, is the management arm of the business, supplying these complexes with an experienced staff capable of meeting the projections for usage that are often determined before a building even breaks ground. Those two roles, helping communities plan for development and then running the venues themselves, put Patik and Clement at the forefront of an enormous market for youth sports. And it's a huge market. In recent years, the company's venues have hosted 25 million visits and generated an estimated $200 million annually in tournament-driven tourism into markets that include Gatlinburg, Tennessee, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Sandusky, Ohio, and Panama City Beach, Florida, to name just a few. Of course, the past few weeks have sent the youth sports market and all of the sports market into a bit of a tailspin. And yet, as you'll hear in this episode, cities are still calling with interest in developing projects. Uh, existing projects that the company is involved with are still on track. And there's evidence that people are ready to travel to the types of youth sports events and tournaments that these venues have traditionally hosted and will host again once authorities give the green light for events to continue. Those events, of course, will look different, as we'll hear, but the encouraging news is that event organizers stand ready to get back to work in whatever capacity that may look like moving ahead. We think you'll find some surprising takeaways from this episode, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. Dev Patik and Jason Clement, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jason. Excellent. Well, this is the first time we've had two guests at once on our podcast, but I think in this instant, it warrants it. We have been writing a lot in the magazine and talking on this platform about what's happening in the collegiate space, in the professional space, but of course, youth sports have naturally taken a pretty large hit over the last couple of weeks. 
And this is an opportunity, I think, for us to take kind of a deep dive from your perspective uh, with your companies, because you're at the front lines uh, at the venue end and in dealing directly with event organizers, uh, particularly in the youth space. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. Dev and Jason, you are the co-founders of the Sports Facilities Companies. Many of our readers and listeners are familiar with the terms SFA and SFM. Dev, why don't you explain a little bit about the uh, the breakdown in the company and, and what it is that you both do in the different parts of the business? Great. Thank you, Jason. And, and thanks for you hosting this conversation. It's important dialogue. We know a lot of communities are nervous about what's happening on the economic front. So we're really glad to be here. The explanation within the SF companies, the sports facilities companies, SFA lives, we live on the planning and finance side. So our job is to figure out what a community should develop, how to get that financed with as little public sector dollar as possible and with as much private sector contribution as possible. And then to make that real through SFD, which we straddle, you know, SFA and SFD with the operations of SFM. And I'll let Jason Clement, um, who leads SFM, our biggest company, share what SFM is up to. Yeah, thanks, Dev. And uh, pleasure to be with you, Jason. So once a project is financed and it goes into development, our SFM team comes on to make sure um, that we're booking a venue, we're opening it up successfully, we're putting all the operational systems and procedures in place so that when we open, we open full and we open with the sophistication of an operation uh, that's been around for a few years rather than a few days. Ongoing then into the operations, we make sure that we perform. And that relates to all different types of venues, ice, turf, court, zip lines, adventure, family entertainment, uh, and more. Uh, so that's what SFM does. Well, Dev, let's. I think I want to start with you and talk a little bit about kind of the planning stages before we get into what's happening at your existing venues as well. Give me an idea, Dev, of what growth was looking like for you guys, say, before March and how that's changed in the last couple of weeks in terms of cities that you were talking to, places that were considering going down this road of developing a, a multi-sport complex. So in a normal week, we would receive typically 50 requests for services, 50 inbound requests from around the world, you know, different communities and different investors wanting to uh, at least look at whether or not they should and what uh, what they might be able to um, finance to get developed as a sports facility. And many of those, a large portion of them are tourism focused, as you know. So if that 50 has really uh, been cut in just about half. So right now, over the last several weeks, we've seen that drop to call it 25. But the folks that are calling us are the same 25 that were more likely to get a project done to start with. They're, they're communities that have been thinking about sports tourism. They know that it's an economic driver. And the communities that are calling us are now saying, hey, we've been talking about this for a while, and we've got to put this front and center because we know when we come back, we, we need to have shovel-ready projects that are economic development in nature that can attract private sector development to the, to the site. So it's been interesting. Uh, lower volume. But in terms of quality projects, we're still talking to the same number of very high quality projects. That is interesting. I would have thought that would have been the opposite. Yeah, I think it's that this, these are long cycle projects and everyone knows it. This, this, is a, this is not a, you call us and three months later we're opening a facility. By the time we put financing documents together and get out in the community and build the partnerships and put all the public-private partnership uh, structures in place to make a project financeable, you know, you're a year and a half to two years out. So I think most communities recognize that if they've been thinking about this, they want to make sure that it's front and center and it's still on the table when we're in the rebound from this very devastating crisis. 
And then for projects that we've been working with, many of them, you know, we're on the ground building partnerships between the hospital and the schools and really trying to make something real. That has paused. And so for now, we just have a temporary, I'm going to call it an eight to 12 week pause button that I think we'll look back on and just recognize as such. But all of those projects, encouragingly, everyone in Chicago and three projects in Texas, in Central Florida, you know, USA Field Hockey, we're uh, finding a home for USA Field Hockey. All of those projects, Kansas, California, they've all said to a, to a team, don't worry, we just need to pause these presentations until people are back to work and we'll get back to it. So we've been very encouraged. And I have to tell you, when this first uh, came out, I was terrified that things would just grind to a halt. And I've been uh, really pleased with how on the planning and development side, on the finance side, people still seem to be really interested in and plan to pursue these projects, at least the most qualified communities are. Yeah, well, everything is changing so fast. As both of you know, it seems almost week to week, you know, there's almost a different long term picture of things. So that's fairly encouraging, Dev, to hear that, uh, you know, the projects that you have underway for the most part or, or entirely at the moment, at least for now, are are sticking with you. Are you do you get concerned at all as far as a couple of weeks from now or a couple of months from now, if, if some of those will back out or is from what you're hearing, at least anecdotally, does it sound like most people are are truly going to be in it with you for the long haul? Yes. Do I think there will be fewer projects in total? Yes, I do. I think that we will deal with fewer speculative projects. And I think we'll have to get to a finance solution very early in our assessment of projects in order for anybody to want to go forward with them. Because people are going to be questioning, you know, how are we going to get this financed? And everyone knows that municipal governments are going to go through a little bit of a downturn just in reaction to what we have. They tend to lag about a year. It's next year's budget. That's the concern. So yes, there will be fewer projects that are funded for by with fully funded but public dollars coming out into next year. But our model, what we've discovered is that most projects can't be developed in that way anyway. You need a public-private partnership. So I think we'll I, I really am hopeful that we'll find that at the end of this cycle, we will net have more projects coming out of the ground and more communities committed to bringing an economic development initiative through sports tourism, I think we'll have more of those than we would have without it just because people are going to need solutions. And you and I both know, we all know on this broadcast that a kid that wants to play soccer or baseball or volleyball, she hasn't stopped wanting to play. She's still going to show up in the fall. So uh, we've been really encouraged. We went from being very concerned to feeling like all right, this will be uh, this will be a blip on the, the radar, and it'll be a pause button. But five years from now, we're going to look back and remember it as such. Right, Dev. Just to stick with you for one last comment on that, when you talk about how these facilities will be funded, are you envisioning any significant shifts down the road to the typical models that you've seen? I mean, you touched on it, but obviously, cities I think are going to be hurting certainly in, in the short term to midterm as far as what they can or maybe willing to bring to the table. Are you? starting to think about any potential shifts and what that model has looked like? Yeah, I think that the historic model has been bed tax is going to generate, you know, it's going to develop a facility. And we've seen some of the best facilities in the country, including, you know, Myrtle Beach and Gatlinburg and others who've uh, used tourism destinations, who've used that bed tax as the primary funding source for venues. Today, we're finding that because these facilities create destinations, it's more common, at least in our projects, that we bring private sector investment to the real estate development site 
on day one, that in a big project, the public sector may only pursue the sports facility if at the same time we can collect other developments, hotel, retail, commercial, whatever that might be. I think people are going to be desperate for concepts in development and projects that actually work to inspire new real estate development coming out of this. And that that model, we believe, because it's it continues to prove itself, we believe that model is going to um, continue to play well. I think we'll see less 100% publicly financed projects in the future and more public-private partnerships where ancillary development happens at the same time, centered around youth sports facilities. Right. Jason, that might be a good segue to bring you into the conversation as well to kind of take this from the uh, conceptual discussion of potential projects to ones that already exist. So um, for starters, Jason, give me an idea of how many venues your organization is managing across the country, just to put some context and how many communities you guys are in. Sure. We're currently managing full-time with our team uh, 24 different venues in 20 different states. And in addition to that, we have 10 venues at some various form um, of construction, um, either you know have just broken ground or in some cases um, we have um, ribbon cuttings that are scheduled you know, for May or June, July. Um, so those, those 10 that are under development right now are still progressing and moving forward without a gotcha. delay. So let's put some, some further context on this, Jason. What have the last couple of weeks been like for your facilities? Are they pretty much all shut down at the moment? And what's the plan? You know, I, I imagine every region is going to be different, but uh, as best you can assess it, what's the plan to start reopening? Yeah, all of them have shut down, and um, that, that happened um, pretty quickly. As you could imagine, the first week or two in mid-March was around mitigating costs and um, making sure that, that we shut down in a way that was, first and foremost, safe and healthy for the guests, um, for the users, for the staff inside of the venues. That took the first week. Uh, and once we got through the first week, we really pivoted internally to talk about What's the comeback going to look like? And so the last three or four weeks have really been problem solving what the new normal is going to be. We internally divided into two different camps. We put a COVID response team in place that was around cost mitigation and what we call security thinking uh, internally. And then we have a whole entire another group that's really focused on the discovery thinking. And that group can't help but think about the opportunity that exists in the situation. And that group is really focused on what the new normal is going to be. Um, and we're calling it our, our COVID comeback committee. And it's chaired by our very best operators right now, focused on regionally um, what venues are likely to come on earlier than others. Um, we're thinking that outdoor venues will probably ramp up uh, more quickly than indoor venues. And then all of the sanitation policies, the screening and the monitoring of users to protect all of the, the folks within each of these, these centers and these communities uh, are first and foremost. Um, the solutions to prevent infection for people who are at high risk that may come into these venues. Um, as you know, the venues come online, probably in groups of 10 or less to start, and then groups of 25, 50, 100. How do we section off different areas of the building and provide programming um, within those parameters of group size um, that allow us to serve the constituents and the guests that are going to be coming back? We recognize the importance of these venues and these operations, um, not just in bringing back the economic climate to the communities we serve, 
but just getting to a sense of normalcy, albeit new normalcy for the communities that rely so heavily on these places to play. We're partnering with local healthcare institutions to make sure that the screening and those solutions that uh, I spoke about are in line with what you know they expect locally and what we should expect locally. And then ultimately generating solutions to support social distancing, physical distancing within these venues, depending on what programming and activities are going to take place. And then lastly, um, we're putting solutions in place to accept feedback. You know, undoubtedly, when we open back up, we are going to be getting feedback from guests saying, hey, that person over there coughed (laughs) or um, they aren't, you know, adhering to social distancing over there. And we want to make sure that our team and staff are prepared to handle uh, any and all of those um, situations as we reopen. You touched on a number of things there, Jason. I think a lot of people are in a similar situation of just trying to figure out on the safety issue uh, who to turn to to get that advice. And with you guys operating in, in 20 different states, you may have 20 different local experts you know, to that particular community giving you advice. That's got to be an interesting challenge for you to kind of navigate that and also try to come up with some best practices, I guess, for all of your venues that, that might be universal. Yeah, you're right. And we've, we've got a good relationship with the CDC through other uh, healthy sport initiatives that we've done in the past. We're part of a Project Play 2020 group, um, which is a large number of um, organizations looking to improve the sport experience for primarily youth and the participants. And um, the CDC has been a longstanding partner in that organization. So, you know, thanks to those um, relationships, We've tapped into um, directly the CDC and what their their thinking has been every step along the way here, um, but as you know and what we're seeing as as we're seeing in the news, really it's up you know state by state to the governors as to when they feel that their state is ready and safe to reopen you know their economy and then ultimately the local municipalities that we exist within and often partner with are going to make calls locally as to when they think um, you know their buildings and their community are ready to open back up. Um, So we're in constant communication um, with those folks multiple times a week, talking about what the plans look like and comparing notes and and really gaining an understanding on what they're seeing from a macro level relative to that. And then ultimately, as I mentioned, partnering with local healthcare providers who through sponsorships or just lowercase p partnerships uh, are going to be bringing personnel out, in some instances, equipment out, and at the very least, policies, procedures on how you test, how you screen, how you isolate folks that may come into your venue to make sure that we're providing as safe and healthy environment as we possibly can. You are listening to the Sports Travel Podcast with Dev Patik and Jason Clement from the Sports Facilities Companies. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Make waves with your next sports event in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Sports planners are quickly discovering what makes Myrtle Beach the ideal place for sports events. Diverse facilities and fields, affordable accommodations, tons of attractions, and 60 miles of pristine beaches that are sure to please. Set new attendance records when you choose Myrtle Beach. Learn more at visitmyrtlebeachsports.com. That's visitmyrtlebeachsports.com. 
Let me ask a question that I guess would be appropriate for either of you. I think, uh, Jason and, and Dev, that's one thing, obviously, for a local government to say that it's safe to come back under whatever parameters they may place on that. It's a different thing for the event organizers themselves to be ready to uh, actually have tournaments to put on and, and for people to travel to them. So what are you guys hearing right now from tournament organizers, event organizers, as far as their time frame of when they're ready to come back? Do you think we are going to be dark here for the entirety of the summer, the entirety of the year, a few more weeks? What, what kinds of things are you hearing out there? Yeah, I can start. And then, Dev, you can you can bat proverbial cleanup here. The organizers that we're talking with, and as you can imagine, we're in constant communication because um, events that have been displaced during this time period that were closed, we're rescheduling with them, either for the summer, later in the fall, or even into next spring. And they are finding a groundswell of, you know, their constituents um, and their customers desiring and wanting to come back as soon as possible. And so we're working very closely with them to understand what the facility requirements are going to be to host those events. They're thinking proactively now about what rule changes need to take place, um, whether they can allow spectators in versus just the participants. Again, how we partner to sanitize playing surfaces from benches to equipment and whatnot, you know, they are in um, what I would ca- characterize as brainstorm mode um, to determine what type of distancing do, do they need based on the, um, the sport and the activity, whether they need to be wearing masks or gloves or any other um, sort of uh, additional protective equipment. But they all have a deep desire to get back to playing as soon as it's safe. For, for their constituents. And it's our job as facility managers and operators to facilitate that environment to make it work. Yeah, I think there are a few things that we've been, we see as markers, right? We're going to follow, our marketplace is going to follow a few other things. And then I think in other places it'll lead. But on the sports tourism side, that's going to follow when people are feeling comfortable traveling across state lines. And until then, we're going to be more regional. And those regional events can produce very important revenues into the economies that they're in, not at the same levels necessarily as national and other larger events. But I think we'll see that just begin to emerge. And as we said, it will have been a pause button and it'll, it'll come back. So fundamentally, I think it's OK. What, what we believe is that when people are back to work, which we're going to start to see here in the next several weeks, and when people are back to school, either in summer school or summer camps, Uh, this summer because parents are at work, that folks are going to get back to normal uh, faster than uh, we might imagine right now. That once we can get together in group spaces, work and office and others, following social distancing protocol, when you can go out and get a haircut, that folks are going to begin to want to just naturally move back into sport in the ways we're seeing. So I think that's the, the meta message. We may have lost, you know, a big part of this year at this point and be looking at the summer now for the return, uh, but it'll come back. And then I think specifically, it depends on the type of event. So um, events where kids are being showcased, they're going to continue to attract and create very meaningful opportunities for both sports tourism and for players. So I think groups that are out there, Perfect Game and others that are putting kids in front, talent in front of recruiters or, or coaches, scouts, I think they're going to come back faster in some cases, and they may still be regional than others. So the draw to the event is going to matter, and the quality of that event is going to matter. 
So uh, what we will see, regardless, is some consolidation in the events business. I think we'll see uh, events rights holders in need of and who've been focused primarily on larger travel events. They're going to need to figure out their regional strategy. So we think that that's, that consolidation and change will happen at the events level will be significant and important to the future of the marketplace. Yeah, Jason talked about the, uh, well, you mentioned the term spectators, which I think is interesting when we talk about youth sports in particular. As you know, these spectators, for the most part, are going to be parents and, and family members. Are, are either of you concerned about when we talk about families and, and sending kids to these you know tournaments that most parents wouldn't have thought twice about before? Are either of you concerned about any psychological effects that might be out there after this sort of shared national experience of staying at home? that um, there may be some hesitancy on behalf of parents to have their kids involved in, in some of these tournaments? Yeah, I'll, I'll start, Dev. I, I don't know that concern would be the right term, but we're thinking about it certainly right now. We are planning for an increased um, use of technology. So live streaming, um, as an example, um, we mm-hmm. are evaluating a number of preferred partners. And, and within our venues right now, we have different applications of live streaming devices that, that we oversee. Um, but we're evaluating those because even if parents are coming in as spectators, um, there is a likelihood that grandparents will be less likely, right, um, to, to come and um, spectate uh, what their kid, grandkids are doing. Um, so we're looking at solutions from a technology standpoint um, that would make that easier for them to participate. Uh, in addition to that, we think as certainly in the first generation of the new normal that uh, the spectator seating is going to be different. And so similar to the grocery store where there are arrows and lanes that you're walking in, um, we're looking at circulation patterns in and around the, the venues that we manage. And as it relates to spectators, we're discussing ways that we can spread out um, spectators around a playing surface. Um, so rather than congregating uh, in a small, you know, tip and roll metal bleacher, how can we spread those spectators in and around um, the playing surface to provide as much distancing uh, as possible? Um, there are no, a number of other strategies we're looking at, but certainly it's something that we're thinking about. And we want to make sure that we're uh, creating a safe, healthy and fun experience for all of the guests. Dev, you've been around other downturns, certainly in the in the economy, and the sports market always seems to have been fairly resilient uh, in all of those past events. What's your take on on this particular crisis? Is is it comparable at all to downturns that we've seen in the past, or do you still get the sense this is maybe uh, something on a different scale? Well, I, I think it is something on a different scale, and and it's different drivers. But you know, when when Jason and I moved through the rec- session, you know, we found that people were remained focused on sports when they wouldn't think about other things. Passion and and the demand for both youth sports and sports in general kept people kind of in the game. So and then as a result, really our management company came out of that, SFM came out of that because a number of facilities asked for help. They said, wait a minute, we weren't prepared for this. And we'll see the same thing now, I think. But I do think my optimism that you hear, it's really related to to that. We have been through downturns and we've also seen tragedy at a community level. Fires in Gatlinburg, hurricanes in Panama City, you know, and Myrtle Beach and floods in Houston. And in every single one of those cases, the youth sports market was among the first to come back. I think in this case, it is different. It's different because it's a health crisis. So I don't think any one of us can predict fully how slowly or how quickly the market for 
travel, uh, significant travel will come back. But I think we will come into the fall and um, start to recognize that while it's still very dangerous at times, uh, I think the youth population in particular will be among the first to travel because they're going to be considered to be more low risk. Um, you know, senior healthcare and some of those industries are going to go through much bigger changes, I believe, than the youth sports market that we're in. Yeah, that was one question I was hoping to ask both of you. And maybe as we as we near the end here, can uh, try and wrap up on that theme, Dev. I'm, I'm hearing optimism from both uh, you and Jason as far as the business and, and what the future may hold here as we continue through what's been a certainly a challenging 2020, to say the least. But I'm curious to get both your takes on the role that sports can play in this overall recovery. You know, as you touched on, Dev, sports has always kind of been there, it seems, to help bring things back to normal when we've had these past economic crises. And while uh, agreed, this is a, a different beast of sorts, I'm curious to, to get both your takes on where the sports market fits uh, and all of that as society starts inching its way back to what we were used to. Yeah, I'll speak from the planning and the finance and development side. And, and um, so, uh, you know, from that side for, for SFA, I believe that because there's going to be, we, we understand there's going to be infrastructure incentive in, you know, whatever the fifth uh, round of stimulus, fourth or fifth might be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe that that stimulus for shovel-ready projects is going to have communities uh, evaluating what they should develop. And as such, you know, do you develop and do you create incentive for a strip mall or do you create incentive for a strip mall that's connected to a sports facility that also produces hotels? I, I think we'll find that the development market will, will uh, be even more attracted to mixed-use development centered around a youth sports complex, and we'll come to understand, you know, why these projects are so interesting. I think that we'll also see a more measured approach. I don't know that we need a whole lot of mega, mega, mega complexes around the country, but I believe that at the community level, we're going to see volumes of developments that are centered around youth sports complexes come out of this downturn. I think that's absolutely true. Jason, what about from your end? Yeah, and Dev's exactly right that um, the focus is going to be immediately here. Um, what can we do locally? Whether that's you know ten group, ten person camps, leagues, clinics, uh, and as the market starts to loosen up a bit and people get more comfortable um, traveling, it's then going to become more area wide, um, you know, within a state, and then statewide, and then ultimately um, regionally um, before loosening up nationally. Um, but even today, the data is suggesting to us that um, we we're, we had a 25% increase in booking over the last two weeks in a number of the venues that we manage um, for June, July, and August programming. The data is sharing uh, or demonstrating to us that people want to travel. They want to get back to this. And what we're really careful of right now is monitoring the hotspots. Um, because the last thing we want is somebody um, traveling in from one of these hotspots and, you know, bringing the virus with them. So there's an increased scrutiny on where people are coming from. And for that reason, uh, you know, Dev's absolutely right. The way that the market is going to, you know, loosen up and grow is, is important. And um, for that reason, a number of these showcases and events, you know, they're talking about bringing from an area and a region, not necessarily nationally, but they're talking about bringing hundreds and thousands of hotel rooms. And so when you talk about a community opening back up here, um, one great way for that to happen 
is a safe and healthy traveler coming in to start spending money again in restaurants and hotels. And um, we're just doing it very carefully. We think it's going to be these tournaments and these events, uh, whether showcase, um, regional, uh, or area-wide, are going to be critical in catalyzing the comeback for a number of these communities that we serve. Yeah, and I think that may be a good way to end things. Obviously, both of you have had to adjust like the rest of the world here the last couple of weeks, but it is encouraging to hear that there is uh, certainly some light at the end of the tunnel, both at the development end and at the event end. So I wish both of you the uh, the best of luck in the weeks and months to come and would love to stay in touch with you both as we uh, proceed along here to whatever the normal looks like a couple of months down the road. So thanks, Dev. Thanks, Jason, for being on today and looking forward to staying in touch. Our pleasure. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Jason. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which also features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at sportstravel on Twitter and Instagram, and at sportstravelmagazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.